Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Renee King Sonnen and Tommy Sonnen, founders of Rowdy Girl Sanctuary in Angleton, Texas. And in addition to telling us about the sanctuary and their rancher advocacy program, they will be filling us in about the recently released documentary. And this documentary has gotten quite the acclaim. So it's really great timing and wonderful to see a sanctuary in the spotlight like that. Yeah, I mean, I imagine a lot of people who are listening might have heard of Rowdy Girl. They have a crazy story. They're such interesting people. Renee is really, she has a personality that will go for days. I mean, Tommy has a great personality too, but I think everybody would concede that Renee's sort of the front person here. You know, they have this this cattle sanctuary in in the middle of rural Texas. Like, who does that? And yeah, the, the movie's really good. It premiered at, at Hot Docs, which is, you know, the huge documentary film festival. And now it's in that status of they're showing it around and you have to find out if there are ways to see it. So I'm not sure that there's a way to see it immediately, but there will be. And I really just hope it's a huge success because their story really is very compelling. There's no Mm -hmm. doubt about it. And lots of personality, great communicators. Yeah, definitely. I am very, very excited and envious that you did this one. So before we get to that, let me just say, hopefully my sound is good right now because I am traveling and I'm using the app to record right now and the no-no of wireless headphones, which you're not supposed to do when you record, but I'm getting the full experience of how our guests are treated, technically speaking, when they're on our hen house. And I'm traveling. I'm on my vacation. Obviously, I wanted to stop and talk to you, Marianne, and talk to the listeners and talk to the flock and those who are on our Mighty Networks page. So, oh, and by the way, that's a good reminder to join Mighty Networks if you haven't yet. It's our hen house. Dot mn dot co and it's a great community that anyone can join. Yeah, it's kind of like a very small social network. <laughs> yeah, and if you're in the flock, you do get a an additional section that sort of unlocks just for you. But anyone can join it, and that reminds me, I need to post to the flock because I have uh, I have this pizza story. Actually, I have two pizza stories. Can I? I I'm going to tell you. Okay, so the first the first thing is we are on a great bat mitzvah queer EV road trip. That That is for short, basically what we're calling it. Uh, and it's, it's, so we're short. Dri- it's not that short, but you should hear the long version. Um, we, we, sh- we are driving to Kansas where my niece is being bat mitzvahed, but we started the trip at a different bat mitzvah. Oh, yeah, bat mitzvah. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking bas mitzvah, but that's kind of optional, right? It's either bas yes. or bat. Yes, but I never hear bas, to be honest. But, oh, you know, right. like, if I was to be bat mitzvah again, I would want it to be like the bossy mitzvah, you know what I'm saying? Is there a genderqueer uh, term? I actually went to one, and it was called a not mitzvah. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so we started out at Moore's friends, kids bought mitzvah. Both of them got bought mitzvah together. And it was in like Tom's River, New Jersey on the shore. And 
which by the way is obviously I'm from New Jersey. So we went through and we did like the whole Jasmine's life tour. It was very, you know, validating for little me who wanted to get the hell out of Dodge or, you know, Edison. In any case, we wind up at this bat mitzvah and, and the reception was at a restaurant and the wonderful uh, host who is one of Moore's longest longtime friends got the vegan food for us at the restaurant and it was pizzas. That's so much better than, than, I mean, I don't know what, I I assume food at these things is usually pretty good, Yeah, but you know, banquet food is usually when it's not vegan, it's usually not that interesting, but pizza, who doesn't like a pizza? Right, right. They're huge, by the way. The pizzas are huge. So they give us these giant salads and they're in front of our plate. I want to go to their butt mitzvah. They put the pizza in front of our salads, which means they're pretty much in the middle of the table. And suddenly all of these people from other tables are coming and taking our pizza. Oh, my God. They thought it was just communal table pizza. And then, you know, it always happens when you get vegan pizza. It's not usually this routine that people make a mistake. The people, they usually know it's vegan pizza and they're like, oh, yeah, I'd like to try that. Oh, yeah, that's good. It's like, get your hands off the pizza. But then you think, oh, but I should be an activist and I should. So there's this conflict. That literally, that was in my head the whole time. Everything you just said, it's like you were reading my mind. And so then the people at our table were like, oh, could you pass the pizza? So then someone at the table says, I think that's their entree. And then everyone got mortified. As well they should. (laughs) So it was funny. But then after everyone loved it, I was like, oh, it's vegan. That's why we got a special thing. And they're like, wow. So that was a good activist moment for Shorzy's. And, uh, And then I have one more pizza story. Um, so then we, we drove through Philly. We went to V-Mark's The Spot, which is a wonderful, incredible vegan grocery store, like a vegan bodega that our friends Carmela and Carlo own. And so that was fun to be able to go there. We, we, need, we, we need to have them up. on the podcast. Yes, totally. They are in it for the animals through and through. And we stocked up on stuff uh, and... Then we drove through Bethesda, where I hung out with Jen from our hen house and her little, the mo- the cutest baby on earth. Oh, my God. And then we went through D.C. and had the Moore tour of the, she grew up in D.C. Then we go through West Virginia. I'm getting to the pizza. I know this is boring. So we're, like, in the middle of West Virginia, and we decide we need to, like, stop. I put on Happy Cow, and there's, like, a pizzeria called Myth, M-Y-T-H. Oh, no, it's mythical, mythical pizza. And they have vegan cheese and vegan crust. And like they speak vegan. And so we stopped and had like mythical ethical pizza. Oh, my God. That's so smart. You should trademark that. We should buy mythicalethicalpizza.com. Anyway, so it was just like, you know, not a vegan friendly area at all. And then there was this amazing spot. How do you know? Like maybe everybody in West Virginia is vegan. You don't know that. Okay, you're. You're right. There are, and there are. Stop making assumptions. Listen, we also were in Harper's Ferry and there was vegan stuff, like lots of places. I'm not saying that West Virginia as a whole is not vegan friendly. This particular place wasn't. It was the only thing that came up when I was searching for vegan food. Hmm. In rural areas, it's not that the percentage of vegans is necessarily lesser, but it's hard to keep a restaurant going because there wouldn't be fully vegan restaurant going, I'm sure, because there wouldn't be that many vegans in proximity. 
So it would be it would be difficult. I mean, I think that's the case here in in Rochester, where both you and I live, Rochester, New York. Uh, There are some vegan restaurants, but, you know, you'd think there'd be more. But it's it's a relatively smallish city. And it, it probably takes a lot to keep a totally vegan restaurant going. But I digress. Get back to West Virginia. No, let me just tell you also that last week on the show, we talked about how we feel like uh, Moore said that driving an EV across the, across the country or like halfway across the country in this case is like veganism was 30 years ago. Or I think she said vegan cheese. But anyway, so far, it's I'm knocking on wood. So far, so good. It's been fine. Like, we've been able to find just places to charge everywhere. Yeah, it just takes a little planning, I think. A little bit, yeah, a little bit. Uh, but it's been pretty easy. And today we're going to do Pittsburgh, which is a city I absolutely love. Love Pittsburgh. Yeah, and then we're going to be in Columbus and Dayton. Is that vegan pierogi restaurant still in in Pittsburgh, am I remembering that right? I just, when I hear the word P- Pittsburgh, I think vegan pierogies. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, I'll let you know. I'll get back to you on that. But so I, we're having, I, I want to tell anyone who thinks I'm a workaholic that I am not because this is the only work related. I haven't been checking my email. Nobody thinks you're a workaholic. Nobody, nobody. People think I'm a workaholic all the time. That. Are you kidding me? People say it all the time and I'm not for whatever. Maybe I'm just telling myself then I'm not. Uh, oh, okay. So last thing, and this is not about the trip, but this is not, this is actually a transition to what we're going to talk about next. I am taking two weeks off of Weekend Edition, and I... Weekend Edition is the radio show that you host on our local NPR station. The last week when I was hosting it, I was also hosting Morning Edition, and I think during Morning Edition, I did the most horrible story. And I just want to tell, this is a really bad story. So go right to the interview if you need to, but it's it's about like an animal dying and we know animals die. So anyway, I did this story about, well, why don't you tell it? Because it made the New York Times, which means that I, we, we reported on it before the New York Times. The fact that the New York Times is picking it up means somehow this is penetrating the, you know, the bubble. Right. It got into the zeitgeist and there are reasons for that, I think. Yeah. You talk about it. Well, this happened in, in a place called Manlius, New York. It's it's upstate, uh, kind of near Syracuse, and it's a small town. And apparently, they the town itself owns the, this this very small flock of of swans, which I believe the flock consisted entirely of the mother, the father, and four cygnets. This article in the New York Times. It, this is a fascinating story. All right, I'll give you the bad part, just so you know. Like these three teenagers broke in, stole the mother, whose name was Faye. Uh, they had to break in, apparently, because they were in a, a, there's a fenced-in pond. I don't, I mean, they're swans, so presumably they could fly out of it, but that's where they lived, in this fenced-in pond. They broke in and stole Faye, took Faye home, killed her, I think killed her first, took her home, and along with their families, had a big meal uh, made of, of Faye. I mean, the, the the reason we're talking about it isn't like just to tell you some horrible thing happened to an animal because, you know, horrible things happen to animals all the time. But that's kind of the point. The unbelievably big deal that people feel this was is in such contrast to their tolerance for the unbelievably enormous, hideous suffering we impose on different animals who don't happen to be our, I guess they're sort of like the town pets. Uh, all right. This is a quote from Sergeant Ken Hatter who 
kind of, I think, was a little troubled. It sounds like he was a little troubled that this happened to these teenagers. They prepared a feast. They did not have any idea of the significance the swans had on this community or that the swans are owned by the village. Like, what do, like that's the point for the, these people, that the, what horror happened here ha- happened to the village. They believed it was just a very large duck in the yeah. first place. Seriously? I mean, all right, maybe they're stupid, but how stupid can you be to believe that a swan is a very large duck? And you live in a town that that has these beloved swans that they apparently are very, very big on. They did not know it was a swan, and they did not know it was not a wild animal. You know, implying that if it had been a large duck or it had been a wild animal, they would be fine. It would have, wouldn't have been bad. It was just their lack of knowledge. This is what they were charged with. Of course, initial charges don't, aren't always the ones that stick. I would hope that at some point they'll be charged with animal cruelty, but there's nothing in this article to indicate that they were. Grand larceny, criminal mischief, conspiracy of theft, and criminal trespassing. Those are all, you know, let's just say they broke in, maybe not broke in, but they went into a private place and they stole something. Nothing about the, the swan herself. Uh, and the whole article, like, residents have a deep appreciation for the swans. They've been ours forever, Mayor Paul Worrell said. Like, it's bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre. It's everything that you would think that would happen. It wasn't because they were lacking in food, Sergeant Hatter said. They were hunting, as if that makes it sensible. Like, isn't the reason people hunt for food? I Like, I just find the whole thing one of the most interesting stories. And all of the play that it's getting really has to do, you know, with with this different, like people feel that these are pets and, and so they matter to humans, so they matter. We allow ourselves to worry about them. And they're not just worrying about the humans, they worry about the cygnets, you know, who now are motherless. They worry about whether the father is going to attack the cygnets. And so they're worried about the animals, but only do they allow themselves to worry about the animals in this very, very narrow context. It's crazy. It's, it's a totally crazy story. It reminds me of the octopus story we reported on two weeks ago when it was like, or last, I don't know when, sometime in the last 13 and a half years, we reported on an octopus. And it also made the New York Times and the comments were all like super in favor of, you know, of the activist perspective of like, you would also be having nightmares if you were in a small cage. And then all of these people were like, I guess I need to stop eating meat now kind of thing. When I report on Morning Edition, I can choose if I report on something or not. And I wanted to report on this because I feel like maybe it it's a little more in your face to make people think differently. I mean, I'm not sh- I'm probably giving people way too much credit well, I think this article does show how much people will will make their thoughts very convoluted in order not to think about, if this is wrong, why isn't this chicken on my plate wrong? Mm-hmm. Like they, they will go through such mental gymnastics to avoid that conclusion. Totally. Totally. All right. Well, I think we should switch gears just because uh, the, it is a good transition to talking about Renee and Tommy because... They are actually doing something about this in like a really m- meaningful and profound way. So let's get to that interview. Renee King Sonnen and Tommy Sonnen are the founders of the Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. Their story went viral on the CBS Evening News in 2016, and their following has grown exponentially since then. 
as a result of that notoriety, farmers and ranchers started reaching out. And as a result, Rowdy Girls' major programming has become its rancher advocacy program, which is currently the impetus for a chicken farm transition to exotic mushrooms in Arkansas. Renee and Tommy's work is currently featured in a documentary also called Rowdy Girl that recently had its world premiere in Toronto at Hot Docs, the largest documentary film festival in North America. They will be joining Marianne right after this. Our friends at FakeMeats.com have been a one-stop shop for meat substitutes, egg replacers, and more since 2011. Many of us, including me, definitely me, have been searching for vegan meat with a shorter ingredient list, and FakeMeats.com has come through with the release of their very own Plant Basics product line. Plant Basics brings us back to basics with their hearty plant proteins and plant-based seasonings. The proteins come in four varieties, all unflavored, gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and low sodium, and made with, get this, only one ingredient. You heard me, one, one ingredient. The classic ground strips and chunks are each made from soy, while the crumbles are created with pea protein, which is basically magic. They come unflavored, so season them any way you like. If you're looking to create a meaty flavor, the plant-based seasonings come in three varieties, just like chicken, just like beef, and just like ham. All plant-based, all gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and made using simple ingredients. Want to whip up a rich broth for a soup? Try Just Like Ham. Or grab some classic ground and sprinkle on some Just Like Beef and bam, it's taco night. I have to say, I particularly love the Just Like Beef because I have been so into tacos recently. I don't know if it's because I'm missing Southern California, but man, the tacos are something I crave. And once this arrived in the mail, I was like, done. Itch scratched. I love it. Anyway, you don't have to take my word for it because fakemeats.com is giving our listeners 15% off Plant Basics products through July 2023 using coupon code HENHOUSE23. That's HENHOUSE23, all caps, H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E-2-3 to get 15% off the Plant Basics line only on fakemeats.com. And you guys, I love it. And I know you will too. Welcome to our hen house, Renee and Tommy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marianne. I'm thrilled to have you. Your story is well known throughout the movement. I imagine a lot of our listeners know your story. But just in case there are some who don't, can you give us the kind of the quick version, set the scene, tell people how you made this enormous shift, and then we'll get into more of the details. Well, I made the shift whenever I went vegan on a Texas cattle ranch in Angleton, Texas, and that happened over a course of about five years. My husband, Tommy, here is sitting here with me, is a multi-generational cattle rancher. And I had married him for the second time, moved to the cattle ranch, and started just waking up. A calf named Rowdy Girl was my vegan advocate, and she was relentless. And over the course of almost five years, I <laughs> broke and didn't know I was going vegan, Marianne, honestly. It wasn't a plan to go vegan. It just happened, and man, when it busted through, it was on. 
Yeah, I'm not sure any of us know we're going vegan when we start down this road. <laughs> it's a big secret. How about you, Tommy? This, in a lot of ways, was apparently a much bigger shift for you than even for Renee. Well, even more than not knowing I was going vegan, there was no way I was going to be vegan. It was quite a <laughs> experience for me for uh, several months before I started realizing that you know, there were some good benefits from it. And I slowly eased into it. But been hardcore vegan for eight years now. Wow, that's great. All right, just tell us a little bit more about the sanctuary because that's that's the past. What's the present? How many animals do you currently have? We currently have 137. We're getting ready to get another one, a little um, heifer named Selena. So we've got 137 beautiful rescues, all from slaughter or serious cruelty cases. The sanctuary is thriving. We have volunteer days. We have volunteers come. We have private tours. We have animal care staff. Our sanctuary has really grown and become so much more than I ever could have imagined it would be when we first started, you know, eight years ago. And we have a big attic garden now. I actually feel like I've just been at your sanctuary because I've just been watching this movie, this amazing movie that has recently been made about you. But I had no idea that even seeing the sanctuary and really realizing how spacious it is, you have a lot of land. I had no idea you had that many animals. That's really extraordinary. And you're, you're actually, I, I looked on the map and you're actually pretty close to Houston, aren't you? So it's not that hard for you to I mean, considering that you're in Texas, you're pretty close. Texas version, pretty close. So you must be able to get quite a few visitors. We do. We're closer to Austin. We have a lot of folks come from Austin. We're also close to San Antonio and Houston's a little further out, but we get guests from all over the country, you know, and even folks coming from Canada and other parts of the world even. That's really cool. And as I say, I feel like I was just there because I just watched this movie. So tell us. How did the movie come about? Well, Jason Goldman is the filmmaker and director and producer. He reached out to me several years ago, interested in our story. One thing led to the other. He came out and visited with us on a couple of different occasions. He's also in New York. And he came and visited us and hung out with us. And, you know, we all agreed that we wanted to move forward. With him, he told me he would be following us around for a few years to get the whole impact of the story. And he told me that it was going to all be observational, that there wouldn't be any music, that he just wanted to get the real deep dive into the work we do. And he wanted the audience to be able to see that. And so that's what he did. That's what he accomplished. And during the process, he got Moby on as executive producer. We just couldn't have been more thrilled with that. And so, yeah, that's what happened. That's how we met Jason, and that's how this all started. Well, I'll tell you, watching the movie, I don't know whether you forgot that the camera was there, because that's got to be pretty hard to do, but I didn't feel ever that you were being filmed. I just felt like you were going about your day <laughs> and, and hanging out and doing your stuff. I guess, I guess did you kind of get used to him being there and kind of forget about it? I did. What about you, Tommy? Yes, it was the same for me. You know, the first few times he was filming us, it was kind of awkward situation. But after a while, you just kind of forget about it because he probably used 1% of what he took. Yeah. 
I mean, he was here a lot. It was a really great experience. He followed us around, and it was as if he was just part of the culture because he was so non-assuming. He was there to really capture the work we were doing at the time through our eyes and through the eyes of the animals and the volunteers and visitors. He really did a masterful job. Yeah, I completely agree. The whole experience felt very natural. And actually getting into a little bit of the details about the movie, it uncovered a lot of things about your life. And one of them is that you suffered or at least experienced or viewed a lot of violence as a child. And I was fascinated with that because I feel like that's likely something that can go one way or another in influencing somebody's life. So can you talk a little bit about how that shaped your future? Thank you, Marianne. That's a great question. And it is something that I absolutely know for a fact has shaped the way that I view these animals and my work with them at Rowdy Girl. I and with other people, you know, I was surrounded by violence as a child because my daddy was a raging, violent alcoholic. He was 12 years or almost 13 years older than my mother when they married, and I was conceived from date rape. And so there was a lot of violence, just, it was just a natural part of our home lives. And because of it, when I finally became like an adolescent, I too went into drugs and alcohol, just trying to escape the reality of my life and eventually got consumed by it and had to have treatment and get sober, which has been the, a real process for me. It took years for me to finally surrender and get sober and really self-assess my life so that I could be used as an instrument for my creator, I really believe that all the violence, everything that happened to me, happened to me for a reason. I believe that the empathy I have, the depth of understanding I have for violence, I mean, I know how it felt for me to live in that. The way that the animals live in it, what they go through is way worse than what I experienced. And it's so crazy to me that we normalize violence to such a degree that we do not care about the suffering of sentient animals. And for me to awaken on a Texas cabaret and go vegan, living in Texas late in life, when it happened to me, I was so angry because all that violence was oppressed in me. And then all of a sudden, it was front and center in my view. And I became so protective of all the animals around me. I wanted to just be with them because there's not a violent bone in their body. They're so, so pure. And so the violence I experienced and the purity of the animals has come together, you know, to really create my mission. That's really beautifully said. My next question was actually going to be about the animals who live at the sanctuary who have obviously also experienced violence in their lives. Tommy, I'd be interested in your perspective, how they change, not just when they arrive at the sanctuary, but when they kind of get used to the fact that they are going to be allowed to just be themselves, but how what you see happening in them differs from what you saw in animals who you were not indifferent to by any means, but who you were raising for slaughter. What's the difference in animals living at a sanctuary? Well, about a third of our animals still 
kind of keep their distance from us. And about a third of them just enjoy us and come right up to us and will even climb on you if you're not careful. And then, you know, the other third, they're kind of in between. But a lot of them that come here really warm up to us and become like super friendly. But we have cases where they just want their space and they want to stay out in the pasture and and be, you know, who they are. We just let them be who they are. I really love that answer because it seems so right that they're going to react differently. (laughs) I was just talking to somebody about feral cats. I know this sounds like a total change of subject, but who said, can all be acclimated if you try hard enough. Now I'm going to get letters from people because if you mention cats, you always get letters from people. But it just occurred to me, well, I bet some of them do and some of them don't because they're animals and they all have individual personalities and they've all been through different things and different experiences and it's affected them in different ways. So yeah, that makes total sense. But I love that as many of a third of them forgive humans and actually start to interact with you in a positive way. I think that's beautiful. Tell us about Rowdy Girl specifically. This is ridiculous, but somehow I always thought that the sanctuary was named after you, Renee, and <laughs> you were a rowdy girl, because you seem like you might have been a rowdy girl when you were, when you, well, maybe you still are. But that rowdy girl is, of course, this beloved cow that you mentioned. And she seems, at least from the filming and the movie, to definitely have a mind of her own. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yes, she is the most amazing being. And rowdy girl came into my life before I was vegan. And she's the reason I went vegan. And her personality is indeed very, very rowdy. When she was a baby, that's how she got her name. If she just would bounce around and run to me and kick her heels and gave me so much delight. And I started body feeding her. And when I bottle fed her, she began to show me the world of all the cows. It was like I was feeding her. And she was feeding me at the same time, life-giving sustenance. Her being is what kind of channeled into me and opened my eyes. And I believe that's why people perceive me as Rowdy Girl, because I really don't know where Rowdy Girl begins and I end. I am constantly aware of her and she's aware of me. No matter where we are in perimeter of each other, If she sees me, she notices me. She lets me know she sees me. She lets me know she's there like right now, even though I'm sitting in an office and she's out in the pasture. I am so deeply in tune with that girl. And all I know is people, you're not unique. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think the sanctuary was named after me. And I really do believe that she and I are here for a reason. And it was through her that I saw everything about the animals. It was through her. And she just kept feeding me, kept feeding me, kept feeding me till I jumped through the portal of no return. And so that's my sweet rowdy girl. And she's not a lovey-dovey type. She does let me stand near her and take a picture. She does let me stroke her just for a minute. But she looks at me and like, you know, we got other business to do. We're all business, me and her. I love that. I think a lot of people who deeply care about animals have had an individual relationship with an animal that has helped them make the shift and see things more clearly. But I don't know of anybody else for whom it's a a cow. So that is a huge privilege that that happened to you. That love comes through in the movie. 
Another thing that comes through in the movie, and an enormously important part, I mean, the, the movie is about the sanctuary, but it's also about your Ranchers in Transition program, which I really want to talk about. Can you just tell us about it, like what it is and who's involved? Sure. Uh, the Rancher Advocacy Program became a thing in July of 2018. That's when we launched the Rancher Advocacy Program on its own website. However, the Rancher Advocacy Program began very quietly when our story went viral on CBS Evening News with Steve Hartman on the road. Tommy and I were in the laps of people all over the United States and internationally even. And when that happened, cattle ranchers and their families were brought into our story, much like you're talking about being brought into the documentary. And so these cattle ranchers and their families that were having their own type of emotional conflict around the animals they send to slaughter began to reach out to me. And so the Rancher Advocacy Program evolved from a real organic outreach of common everyday cattle ranchers, farmers, just reaching out to say, I have the same feelings. I'm never able to talk about it. It's taboo. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many times I've heard the word taboo. Just talking about your feelings for the animals you send to slaughter is a very taboo subject. You don't do that if you're going to make money off of them. You may have feelings for them for a short time, but you've got to be able to turn it off and do the work you do in order to fulfill your life as a cattle rancher. So the Rancher Advocacy Program initially was created to help farmers and ranchers when they started having their emotional awakenings around the animals they send to slaughter. That was the primary purpose. What I later discovered was, you know, I was going to have to help figure out a way for them to make a living because there was no way they would transition, even if they did have feelings for the animals, if they couldn't make money. So that's how Ralph was born. Uh, yeah, it's a very powerful story, and there are a lot of powerful moments in it. But Tommy, I was wondering, like, do you feel like you're kind of the poster child or so, or the first example of the person who needed this rancher advocacy in order to move on to the next step in your life? And does that give you a special ability to talk to these people? Yeah. When I talk to other ranchers, I let them ask questions because they already know what we do and they're very curious about it. And as Renee was saying, no ranchers, ever want to talk about the compassion for the animals unless they're young they'll do anything to take care of their animals and save them but they're still going to slaughter but let me tell you all those ranchers they don't have to work on the kill floor we hire ex-convicts and recent immigrants to work on the kill floor because nobody wants to do that part of it and nobody wants to talk about it and ranchers love their life typically, but they don't do the actual hard work. I think that's fascinating. And it reminded me of this line from Timothy Patcherat's book, Every 12 Seconds. You might be familiar with it about work he did in a slaughter plant. And he wanted to volunteer for every job so that he could write his book more accurately. The slaughter plant divides it into two people. One of them knocks the, the cow unconscious. It was for cattle, this slaughterhouse. And the other one slits the throat so that neither has to feel completely responsible. But everybody at, at the plant 
said, don't do that. Don't do that. That'll really fuck you up. You don't want that job. Those are the people who work in the slaughterhouse. So I hear what you're saying. Like, like even within a slaughterhouse, nobody wants to be the one to do that job because it, it's brutal. And, and especially for people who have raised these animals. So yeah, I think what you just said is fascinating. Yeah, it, it's a real, real dilemma. Now, the powers that be are using artificial intelligence to see if they can figure out a way to slaughter animals without any human contact at all, except, you know, on the other side of a computer pushing buttons. How horrible is that going to be for the psyche? You know, unbelievable, unbelievable that you can just kill animals from your computer on a kill floor, just line them up and kill them with that, with AI. It just blows my mind that that's coming down. Yeah. I had seen an article about that and I had forgotten about it, but you're exactly right. And the industry actually knows that people have trouble doing this. I mean, I just thought it was so fascinating that they divided into the knocker and the throat slitter so that nobody feels fully responsible. They know what this does to people. So they're trying to come up with a way to do it that people don't even have to be involved. It's a nightmare. But, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that grief is such a central emotion. I mean, in the whole movie, grief has a lot to do with what's going on. And for these ranchers or farmers that you're advocating for, I just wonder, like, one of the things that stands in their way of changing is that they're afraid of the grief. I mean, it certainly happened to me. I don't know whether it happened to you as well. When you realize of what's been happening and you really face it, the world just becomes so terrible. People will do a lot to avoid pain and, and feeling grief is so painful. Do you, do you think that's something that's standing in people's way, the, some of the farmers or ranchers that you've spoken to? It's a great question. I don't think it's a conscious decision. I know that when I went vegan for the animals, when I became an ethical vegan, it seemed like it was overnight when it happened. And the grief I felt for all of the animals I had con contributed to their deaths was immense. I mean, I, I, I could not even live in my home during the day. I would live, I would stay with the cows. I mean, honestly, Marianne, I am not kidding you. When I went vegan, the grief was so bad. I couldn't stand to be in my house because of all the deer heads and other animals that were lining our walls all the antlers. We had hundreds of antlers, dead heads all over our house. And I went from being like totally mindless about it to absolutely feeling inundated with the suffering of all of those murders. And that's what it felt like to me. It felt like I was just, I had contributed to mass murder. And I started just hanging out with the cows. And every day I would take my lunch. I would take my guitar, I would take my sleeping bag, and I would just go and hang out with the cows. When they walked, I walked. When they laid down, I laid down, and I got to know them through their eyes. I just meditated with them all day, and then I'd go back home come evening time. It, that really came through in the movie so clearly, and I think it's unusual, actually, for it to hit somebody full force like that, like all, you know, to go from not being aware of it to being aware of it 100%. And it sounds like your experience, Tommy, and I think was is more similar to most people's and I think to mine, 
that you kind of let this in piece by piece. Do you think that's typical? And do you think it's typical of, of some of the people you've seen transition? You know, I think it's one of the reasons people start with health, like the health arguments or the environmental arguments. They're not as painful. People can kind of let the pain in a little bit at a time and change gradually. Was that your experience? That was the impression I had from the movie. Exactly. I started out trying to get a little healthier. You know, Renee was a full-fledged vegan and I couldn't stand what she was cooking. And <laughs> so I started cooking for myself. I a vegetarian and got a lot of health benefits out of it. I, I lost a lot of weight and wasn't even trying. And so, yes, I eased into it from a health standpoint. And then I really got concerned because I've always believed in statistics and scientific approach to stuff. And whenever I started looking at statistics about what we're doing to the earth, I realized that there's more than one reason to stop eating meat. And it wasn't just health, it was environmental. And of course, I always loved animals. I just took them to the, the cell barn. And I don't have to do that anymore. And it's really a great thing because a lot of these animals out here, I say it's a great thing until one of them passes. I'm so close yeah. to them now that it's really tough on me. In the old days, it wasn't tough on me because I compartmentalized it into another area of my brain, I guess. And it's what we have to do to feed America. And I'm not killing them. I just take them to the cell barn and drop them off. And although when I would drop them off, their eyes would get real big and they're looking at me because they don't know all these other people that are slapping stickers on them and stuff. The compassion, yes, was the last thing yeah. to come. I, I I see that happen so often. And yeah, I think it's, you know, people say that, that animal advocates should just focus on the animals and not so much on the health arguments or the environmental arguments. But I think it's a process. And the fact that we have so many arguments on our side is something we should celebrate. Absolutely. For me, I was a practicing yogini for many, many years. So I had already dabbled into the health side of things. I didn't ever do anything on purpose for the environment. I didn't learn about all that till I went vegan. But health-wise, I had practiced vegetarianism. I went totally raw plant-based one time for my health, but I never did it for an ethical reason. And so when I started waking up, it was gradual. It was definitely gradual. It took me five years to go vegan, but I never, I never once thought I'm going to do this for my health. I never once thought, well, I'm going to go vegan, period. When you're married to a cattle rancher, you don't plan on going vegan. You don't, in the back of your mind, think, well, I wonder when I'm going to go vegan. And you're very oppressed, those feelings. And so when I finally did go vegan, it was like I was so angry because when I finally slipped through that door, it's like this veil, you know, you go through. And for me, it was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe I have been on the other side of all of this suffering for all these years and that it's been normalized by my family, by creatures that I've been pretty much conditioned by society, by schools, everything. Everybody has been conditioning everyone to normalize violence and eat animals, to just like Tommy said, he loved animals when he sent them to the cell barn. That is a normalized concept. Obviously, I feel angry about what's happening, but there's also a personal level to it that I feel personally angry that I was told everything that was a lie. It's infuriating. There was one story in the movie that I really wanted to talk about. 
was so interesting about you getting a calf from a local rancher. And he loved this one calf so much because he had developed a personal relationship with this particular calf. And there was a lot of filming of your conversation with him, which was very friendly. There was no hostility. And you would kind of bring up the big picture and he would turn the conversation back to this one calf and you would gently bring it up again and he would turn it away again. And watching that happen repeatedly was just fascinating to me. So you're a really good communicator. You managed to communicate with people who a lot of people in this movement would not be able to. Do you have a specific strategy? I mean, obviously, he didn't immediately say, oh, yeah, I'm going vegan, and we shouldn't ever expect that. But I can't believe you didn't get to him in some way. So what are your thoughts about communicating with people? And how does it work with the people? I mean, you live in the middle of cattle country. How does it work with people? Well, it's a great question. And Marianne, and one I'm asked frequently, and that little calf is Buster. And Buster now is a full-grown steer, and he is just as loving as he was as a baby. Today, he's just as loving. He'll, you know, let you rub all over him, and he'll put his head in your lap if you're on the ground with him. So cattle ranchers are some of the most loving people They are so much the salt of the earth. I say that all the time. And the way I communicate with them is, number one, I know exactly how they think. I know exactly the depth of their understanding about what they believe in. I understand their loyalty. I understand the tradition, how important it is. I understand how much that they want to be able to live on the land, to be in a rural setting and not be in the city, I know how deep that goes. And so when I talk to them, I am not going to say anything to make them feel like I'm trying to make them go vegan today because that ain't going to happen. All it's going to do is piss them off and they're going to look at me like I'm some crazy vegan from California or New York (laughs) because that's what they think. You know, most cattle ranchers think vegans are freaking crazy because they come off uh, as if they do not have any understanding or empathy for their way of life. They come across as if they don't have any clue. So because I do have a clue, my way of talking to them is like from from the back of their eyes. I go right where they are and I ask them questions based on what I know happened to me, based on what I know happened to my husband. You know, I just gently ease myself into conversations. I keep it real. I keep it right on the line. I skate the edge of pissing them off. I am right on the edge. And I know I am. (laughs) And I know I am because see, I know what, I know how far I can and cannot go with each conversation. Yeah. His partner, for instance, they're both full-blown cattle ranchers. And Sonny has been to our sanctuary on a couple of different occasions to come visit Buster. And every time he comes, I get to talk to him a little more. So the conversation with a cattle rancher doesn't just start and end with that one conversation. If you're going to really change a cattle rancher, you got to develop a relationship with them over time and be committed to that relationship, regardless of which way it goes. We have relationships like that in flux in many, many regards. There's several cattle rancher families we're in conversations with that aren't vegan that are on their way or will never go, but who knows? But they ask questions. So it's an interesting grant. The movie captured it perfectly. And you never gave in. 
you always like repeated your point and what you believe, but it was such a gentle conversation, even though there was so much disagreement at the bottom of it. And he just seemed like the nicest guy in the world. So it was really a lesson. And I love that you have both said, and I think this is the truest thing, whenever you're talking to anybody about animals or veganism or anything, ask questions, like don't just talk, even though I understand the urge to because we know so many things about what's happening and other people don't and we want to let them know that. Asking questions, I think, is just the best form of conversation because, you know, we are so right in so many ways that if, if you ask people enough questions, they'll kind of <laughs> they'll lead themselves there in a way, as, as in some ways he did. You know, he kept having to turn it away from this particular beloved calf so that he wouldn't get to the logical conclusion of how much he loved Buster. It was fascinating and really an advocacy lesson. You know, Sonny, that cattle rancher that surrendered Buster, he was quite receptive to our way of life. He was adamant that his way of life was the way it is. And he kept bringing up God and the Bible and whatnot. And I was born and raised in Christian homes. So I know the Bible. I've always gravitated to studying, whether it be the Bible or the Bhagavad Gita or the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali or the Tao. I've always been a very spiritually minded person. So I know the Bible. And so I was able to, you know, have that conversation with him. I think that really helped. And other cattle ranchers that are on the edge, they may not be directly in the RAP program, but we have like conversations with a couple, an older couple. They're 100% a Baptist couple. We've rescued four of their cows, two mamas and their babies, a little bit in Savannah and Grace and Randy are both here because a cattle rancher's wife right here in Texas has a big, big heart for these cows and she cannot stand seeing them go to the sale barn. But she's like I was, you know, this is what you do. But her husband, to his credit, has let her rescue these two that she really, really got close to. And so they're here at Rowdy Girl with their babies. And they come regularly to visit the animals. And every time they do, we come into my house. We sit down and have a cup of coffee. I offer them vegan pastry or vegan sausage. And we talk about it, you know. And so you just... But you just, we talk about it in a way that's friendly, that's comforting. They don't feel threatened. They leave with questions in their own mind. See, when people's conscience can start bugging them on their own whenever I'm not around, that's when they're going to go vegan, is when I'm not around. I've got to make sure that whatever conversation I'm having with them is making them think when they leave the sanctuary. Yeah, that is beautifully said. It's so true. Like we can't do vegan advocacy thinking that we just have to talk to this person and they're going to say, oh yeah, you're right. That is not going to happen. It's all a matter of planting seeds. And it sounds like you have found some fertile ground in this crazy world we live in. So many people are just trapped by circumstances into what has always been done and don't see a way out. And that is what you were giving them. You were giving them a way out, but it's up to them to choose whether they're going to take it. How can people see the movie? Well, right now, Rowdy Girl, the documentary, is in the world of being shopped at major film festivals. So the best way to know when you can see the movie, whether it's going to be live streamed in your community, in your theater, or at a festival in your area, is to subscribe to our newsletter. Follow us on all of our channels so that you know when that's going to happen. Because right now, you can't see it unless you know you get a private link from us for a podcast or something like this. 
because our filmmaker is very strategic in getting this film placed in prime real estate, if you will, for film festivals. So absolutely. Yeah. And we plan on being on a tour with the film and the book. I just finished it back this week. It's probably the publisher. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's the other thing I wanted to ask you about. So tell me more about the book. The book is going to answer all the questions that the movie may leave you wondering. <laughs> the book is called The Secret Diary of a Counter Rancher's Wife. Nice. And I don't use the word secret lightly. Gray reveal tons of things. It is about my entire life from the moment I was conceived to my first experience with animals to religion to what happened to us at Rowdy Girl to the Rancher Advocacy Program, even the work I do with the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. This book covers everything, and I bring it always back to the animals. Every experience I had growing up, I can correlate it to the animals, and I masterfully weave that content in the chapters. It sounds very powerful. I'm really looking forward to it, and we'll have to talk to you again at some point when the book comes out. And your social media identities are Rowdy Girl Sanctuary and Rancher Advocacy, two separate sites. That's right. Yes, there's two separate. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. And then we also on TikTok have a Rowdy Girl Sanctuary account for people that want to, you know, follow our cute videos. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure so many people do want to. This has been great. I've really enjoyed this conversation with both of you. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you for joining us on our hen house today. Thank you. We appreciate it so much, Marianne. Thank you. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. I, I have one more story. I, I know there have already been a lot, but there's one more on the Prop 12 decision from the Supreme Court that I thought you might enjoy. This is from, this is by one Meredith Johnson, and it's from uh, Watt Agnet. And the title of the story is SCOTUS Prop 12 Decision Opens Door for Animal Activists. Well, I hope you're right, Meredith, as I so often do. So she tells us about the decision, which you're all familiar with. She said it prohibits the use of cages for egg-laying hens and bans the sale of pork from hogs that don't meet certain production standards. The the, the case itself really only dealt with uh, the, the pigs, but, you know, this is an egg site, so I guess they want to emphasize that, you know, also, it, it sort of affects the eggs, uh, which just didn't get, there wasn't a legal claim against the egg as part of the decision. She says, today's Supreme Court decision on California's Proposition 12 sets a dangerous precedent for animal rights extremist groups to target other states with similar ballot initiatives. And she's quoting the Animal Agriculture Alliance in its response there. The AAA also went on to talk about HSUS which they call a prime example of a group that focuses efforts on states that will be minimally impacted by the legislation. Imagine that. They went to states 
that were aren't owned by the ag industry. What are they? How evil of them? Uh, even though you know everybody will be affected by the by the legislation uh, who's in California because it it controls what can be sold in California. But they have a one-track mind. Does it affect the industry? The industry itself is not that much in California, so they shouldn't be they shouldn't be affecting the industry in other states. That's their their point. This means that a significant majority of California's pork, it goes on to say, is produced in other states who will now be expected to comply with regulations passed by voters outside of their state. I know you're getting sick of my saying this, but again, like they leave out the part. No, they're not. They, they're only expected to comply with those regulations if they're selling pork within that state. You know, go on to talk about the, the case. I won't, I won't bore you all by going through it again. Then she also talks about what this means for the future. And the Animal Agriculture Alliance warned other states to be prepared for similar initiatives to arise, especially in states that allow for legislation to be passed through the ballot. Well, yeah, because you can't get these things through state legislatures. So, yeah, that's what changed everything. Ballot initiatives, they say, allow these extremist groups. Can we take a step? something that's being voted on by all of the people in the state? But yeah, it has something to do with extremist groups. To bypass the traditional legislative process to go straight to voters on issues that the general public typically has little knowledge of and that tend to be oversimplified in ballot measure wording. So I guess their, yeah, their point is, is that people shouldn't vote on things we should leave it up to legislatures, even though because, you know, we own the legislatures. So so it's so much better for for everybody. And people are, are just too stupid. That's basically their point. People are too stupid. This is particularly effective, they say, when it comes to emotional issues such as animal welfare. Is every issue of torture and pain and suffering emotional? Uh, does that mean that, you know, we can't be trusted to think about it? Like, what does it even mean? It's extremely costly for the animal agriculture community to push back against ballot initiative campaigns as the target audience is the state's entire population rather than a limited number of state legislators, i.e. we can't buy them all off. <laughs> oh, they're so funny. The, the sad thing is, is that, you know, what I'm hearing and what's going to be the next step, I mean, they already have their next step planned, and that will be to bring back something that was called the King Amendment, which was named after a disgraced legislator from Iowa, Steve King. Uh, he's no longer there, but the amendment uh, will surely be revived. There's all, I think it's already been introduced. The Dormant Commerce Clause doesn't really say that uh, it would be unconstitutional to have limits on states that uh, decide what they can import and what they can't import. What it says is that it's up to the federal government, that because that's under the Commerce Clause, it's up to the federal government to make those decisions. So they're going to be running to Congress and try to get Prop 12 undercut that way. You know, you never win these battles. You never win. It just goes on and on. We won the, well, let's say we won the battle, but the war is is far, far away from one. And, you know, they have a lot of resources. So we'll be waiting next steps. But for the moment, it's really nice to see how upset they are. That always gives me joy. All right. You know, in some ways, I kind of agree with this one. This is from Watt Agnet. In, in other ways, I don't agree with you. You won't be surprised to hear. The onion poultry slaughter satire is not funny. All right. So apparently the onion, which this guy loves, the author of this story, whose name I actually can't find. Anyway, and he, he likes the onion, but he's so disappointed about the onion's new piece of satire 
Tyson holds a contest to let fans submit new ideas for torturing chickens to death. Uh, I had not seen that piece from The Onion, but um, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's funny, but I think it's a suitable topic for uh, satire. But this guy, he worked in poultry slaughter, or I guess it could be a woman, worked in poultry slaughter plants for six years. And he and everybody there took, uh, took humane slaughter very, very seriously. Uh, okay. And, uh, you know, he does point out that people, I'm assuming it's a man, people outside the poultry industry might not believe that the individuals who work on the slaughter end of the plant really care about how the animals are treated. But I can assure you they do. And the reason he's sure is because if you walk down the evisceration line, can you imagine working on something called the evisceration line? Or look at the carcasses on the deboning or cut-up lines. If you see carcass damage, that could be the result of over or understunning the birds or something to do with the, the live hangers or the catching crew. Those are humans they, the, describing their jobs. Um, not following proper handling procedures. If you see that kind of damage to the carcasses, well, then it's bad business because, you know, they, they won't get approved. So the reason, apparently, he thinks that the reason we can be sure that they care about not being cruel to the birds is because it will cost them money if they are, which, you know, is such bullshit. Uh, as we all know, it's economies of scale. And the, the rate at which they kill these poor creatures is so enormous that, that and, you know, the, it's not like the only bad things that happen to them are accidents. Like the whole thing is is horrifyingly cruel. When it's done perfectly, it's horrifyingly, hideously, astoundingly cruel. All right, I'm getting carried away. Critics, he says, of the poultry industry may not believe that individuals working for poultry companies are concerned about the welfare of the birds in their care. Yeah, they don't. But they certainly can't believe that industry professionals are stupid. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, all right, I won't offer an opinion. Humane handling and slaughter of the birds increases pack out yield. So because you can't sell broken wings or bruised parts, we know that they must be treated nicely and humanely. And he realizes that some poultry industry critics will always think it is immoral to kill an animal so it can be consumed as food. Yeah, I actually am a poultry industry critic, and I actually do believe that. But it's not like that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the horrifying, vicious, unending cruelty of slaughter. His beliefs, uh, he points out, on the relative value of animal and human life. Like, how did we start talking about the relative value of animal and human life? Like, like that was a quick... A quick jump. But his beliefs on that come from the Bible. So, you know, let's not argue with that. He's gotten used to critics of the poultry industry thinking he and others who have worked in slaughter operations are immoral. But really, do they think we are stupid too? Again, I'm going to let that question go unanswered. So he's just going to accept the Onion satire piece as an attempted joke that bombed. He ends by saying, I think that some subjects like torturing animals for fun just aren't ever funny. And I have to agree with that. Torturing animals for fun, you know, what are we torturing them for? So you can eat them when you don't need the calories. So it's kind of an entertainment purpose. All right. Meetingplace.com has a column this week. It's by Lisa Keefe, the center of my plate column. And she says, don't you believe it? And she's talking about a study you may have heard of. It was conducted by Sodexo Campus. Sodexo is, of course, a huge food supply uh, company that, that 
you know, runs the cafeterias in many, many universities. And they did this study along with Food for Climate League and Better Food Foundation, which she just describes as a think tank. It took place at three universities, Tulane, Lehigh, and Rensselaer Polytechnic. The idea was to to run an experiment in which a dish was offered to students in both a meat and plant-based version at lunchtime um, at one of the one of the dining rooms. The examples were either roasted sesame, ginger tofu, tikka masala. Wow, that sounds good. Or chicken tikka masala. And uh, they had control days and and plant default days. So on control days, they just offered both both dishes. On plant default day, only the plant based dish was easily visible. And then information about a meat-based option was available. It's not clear from the way she's describing this how difficult it was take it was to take advantage of the of the meat-based option. She does show a sign which shows how unfair this is, which I, you know, whatever. Like the sign for the for the plant-based option is is like a, a regular piece of paper. And then there's a little card saying that you can have the meat-based option instead. And as I said, I don't know whether you had to just ask for it or whether you had to like, you know, wait on a different lot or whatever. They, she didn't make that clear. She points out, and the results were dramatic as 81% of students chose plant-based entrees when they were available as the default option. Crowed, one story written about the survey results. Well, yeah, wow, wow. And then she says, mm, not exactly. And it's true. There are some caveats here. Uh, One of them is she says the students were strongly pushed to give the results Sodexo and the organizations wanted. You know, they were pushed. I mean, that was their point. That's the point of making it a plant default day. Like making if their whole point is that if you make it a lot easier to choose the plants, not impossible to choose the meat, but easier to choose the plant, more people will choose it. And that's exactly what they proved. But she thinks that the, the study was flawed in some way because they were pushed. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) <laughs> like it's not it's not the point of the study. And, and she's pointing out that the plant-based option was on this big piece of paper and the, the meat-based option was on a card, a small card next to it. And then she points out that, that 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 small card was only at one of the universities and the other two, I guess, were more prominent. So she then says that the what's really showing here is that the 81% is indicative of human nature. Well, yeah. That's what this is about. It's about the fact that people just choose what's easiest and meat is always made easiest for them. If you make plants easiest for them, they're fine with it. That's the whole point. This is a really interesting fact. All of this is just so interesting. More telling is the fact that on control days, students had an equally presented side-by-side choice. 73.1% of students opted for the meat. That means that over 25% with absolutely no pushing at all, opted for the plant-based option, which is, I mean, if I was the meat industry, that's what I'd be upset about. She also points out that they took out Rensselaer Polytechnic data because there were implementation inconsistencies. She she insists that those inconsistencies was that most of RPI students are male, uh, which I guess that could make a difference, but, you know, it sounds like an assumption she's making. Another point is that on plant default days, the station where the test was being implemented served 25% fewer dishes overall. So that was reported in the study, and she's acting like it was all deceptive, but she's getting it right from the study. That is an indication that, you know, there's some people who just didn't go there because the plant-based option was available. So it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. She's pretty upset about it. 
and even she thinks that the most uh, the most telling statistic is that when they were made completely even, more than a quarter of of the people selected the plant based option. Yeah, you people should get anxious because you're in a dying industry. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 